This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tom Rackman, author of The Imperfectionists, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, Basket of Deplorables, and most recently, The Italian Teacher. Rackman worked at the Associated Press as a foreign news editor and then became a correspondent in Rome. He now writes fiction full-time and lives in London. His novel, The Italian Teacher, traces the lives of Bear and Pinch Bavinsky, beginning in 1950s Rome. Bear is a world-famous modern artist, and Pinch grows up striving for his father's love and acceptance. We began discussing Rackman's deep dive into the culture around artists and visual arts in the novel, and his fascination with concepts in the art world, like beauty versus conceptual art or selling work versus making art for art's sake. Rackman explains what he was thinking about regarding these ideas while working on this book. I suppose that I had two perspectives on it, really. And the first was that of somebody who had consumed the arts and been a huge fan of them for pretty much all of my life, whether it was visual art or movies or music. Uh, it was it was always something that I was particularly drawn to. But it wasn't just the the creative work that I was drawn to. I was also fascinated, like I think a lot of us are, by the lives of these peculiar characters who seem to populate that world. And these amazing tales that you'd hear of these people who were not just larger than life, as the as the cliche often is, but but somehow different sorts of human beings on a certain fundamental level that they were not somehow subject to the sorts of moral expectations that other people had, and that this was all justified by the the fact of their their unworldly brilliance. The second perspective I was referring to is that from the inside. Now, of course, the, the world that I write about in this novel is that of the visual arts, so uh, really primarily painting and ceramics and things like that. But at the same time, I felt like there was a great deal more about the arts generally, about that included the literary world, that uh, that is viewed from the outside with a, with huge thick layers of of myth on top of it all. That once I had been on the other side of it and been able to glimpse some of that up close, I increasingly felt that that those myths didn't really accurately represent what it was like on the inside. And I was caught between those two perspectives, the one I had always had before and still continue to have in certain ways of, of fascination with creativity and these kinds of these types of people. And on the other hand, the perspective that I'd had from inside that world of, of starting to feel that these people were, were not really true to many of those myths. And over the years, I bumped into and spoke with a few of my heroes, literary heroes. And more often than not, it was a quite disenchanting experience. I'm not going to give you particular names of people, but that it was striking, not that they were necessarily worse than than I would have expected, but just that they, they were very different. That um, I realized as well through my own efforts that, that there's a great deal more work than there is magical inspiration in creative um, uh, creative production, and, and that other aspects of the arts are also mythologized, such as this notion that that artistic people don't really care what's what whatsoever about what people think. They just have a vision, and they're working towards that vision. They don't. They don't. They're indifferent and often unrecognized in their lifetimes. But afterwards, it all 
weighs out perfectly, and eventually they'll be given their 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 just uh, just rewards. And in, in no regard did I find that to be true when I encountered the the the, the arts from the inside. Uh, it was clear that there were there were certain people, not just in our own time, but historically, who have been overlooked and snubbed and other personality types who have risen to the top and are acknowledged as genius when they weren't necessarily better than others. They just had the right kind of formula. And so it seemed like a much more complicated and um, and in some ways corrupt uh, aspect of, of our lives, but also one that seemed to have hold such an important part of, uh, in, our, in our culture at large that it's something that we are willing to believe all sorts of lies about just to maintain its place. So you you had these thoughts about the art world and your experiences within it, but then you had to create this into a story. So you had to create characters and you had to create the tensions between them. So how did you take your your kind of lofty ideas about the art world and what you were experiencing them and put them into characters? And can you talk about these characters that you chose? Yeah, that's a very good question because I think as that Often I have ideas that I'm chewing over when I when I want to write something, particularly with a novel. When you have so much space to work with, then I I always want to infuse the story with uh, general thoughts that I have. And I believe, however, that it's vitally important not to make those themes and ideas broadcast too loudly because you don't want it to seem like it's some work of, of argument or instruction. You don't want to be didactic basically. And, um, and that's the worst thing if you're reading and you feel like, like you're being, you're being uh, forced to think one thing or another. So what I prefer is to, to have a story and, and hope that that story would provoke people to think about some of the, the questions that I had in mind when I was writing it. So that said, you know, there are these, these, these overarching themes that I, I mentioned. And, and the, the question then is how to somehow sew them into the story without making them them feel uh, overbearing. So um, I I think that probably what I do is uh, is early on I put aside the ideas as much as I can and I try to construct a, a story that intrigues me and char- build characters as well who I'd like to spend several years with because that's what it means in the end. And then it's only long long after when I'm in the the, the phase of revising it and rewriting it and trying to refine what I set out to do that I might return to some of those themes and underscore bits that I think are important and add in a few sentences here or there or trim other bits that, that seem to make it too woolly. Um, so that it's it's almost a, a, the thematic sides, almost a layer that I wouldn't expect any, um, any uh, that I wouldn't expect every reader to, to necessarily pick up. But if I hear back from a reader that they got those themes, then I'm really pleased because uh, it seems like I must have gotten the right balance or I hope that it means that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tom Rackman, author of the novel The Italian Teacher. So Bear, as an artist, he has a big personality. He takes over the room. He's lauded by society. He's a womanizer. He has ends up having 17 children with who knows how many women. Um, some of them sort of simultaneous families. He's one of those personalities that gives all his love to strangers, and he doesn't give much to his family. I mean, he he showers them with compliments, and it's like you want to be in his son. 
And when you're not in the sunshine, you feel the coldness of the shade. But to me, Pinch, he just had this desire so much to be like the parent who disses him and pulls from the parent that really loves him. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's it's one of the most persistent tragedies, I think, in human relations generally, that um, so sadly we're often attracted to those people who provide their affection intermittently and irresponsibly, inconsistently. And often we take for granted those who are true to us. And um, it's something that, that uh, comes out in all sorts of love affairs and all sorts of parental relations. And in my, in my observation, it seems that there's a trajectory of these kinds of relationships, particularly when they're with parents and children. And that is that the, the parent being the determining um, uh, factor in that relationship, the parent has some, some difficult personality in some way or other, and that the child for long periods when they're little is desperately trying to work out the formula, try to figure out what it is that cons- can consistently will earn the the affection from that person when it seems that there's there's no no clear rules to it no clear rules and if there are rules then they're painful rules to follow and many many years are invested sometimes an entire lifetime are invested in just desperately trying to figure this out trying to fit in and then what often happens is that at a certain stage in the in the life when the the child is probably reached adulthood or close to it maybe in adolescence they they start to reevaluate the whole relationship, see it in an entirely different way. And rather than just acting from habit, then they begin to wonder why on earth they are making so much effort that is so poorly um, reciprocated. And uh, it can lead to immense bitterness and sorrow, which, oddly, doesn't mean that those efforts to gain the approval end necessarily. It just means that, that it can become even more fraught when the person becomes conscious of the the sort of horrible um, knot that they're in. And uh, these sorts of people who who end up causing their children or their lovers to to, to follow that that sort of sad path are frequently people who are um, who are unwilling to adjust. So after the the, the child, let's say, um, or the lover uh, finds, figures out exactly the nature of their relationship. They might then want the other person to change, but they realize that there's no way that that person ever will. And that that if they are to continue to have any sort of relationship with that person, they have to continue to just mold themselves to fit in, to, to be the assistant, to be the, the support or whatever it might be, whatever the nature of that, that job is. And that too is a terribly painful realization that you're not recognized for your agency and autonomy, but really as as uh, a, a useful employee almost. And that's very much the nature of Bear's relationship with almost everyone around him. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tom Rackman, author of the novel The Italian Teacher. I think there's also this idea that if you do create something great, that it's okay that you ignored your family for their whole lives in the sense that, oh, you created something so beautiful that's going to be given to to the masses that it's okay that you were a bad father. 
that's absolutely true. And uh, the, I think that actually, it's I mean, the, the timing of this, this novel has been particularly, of its publication has been interesting to me in that um, we have been since last October, I think, going through um, the a, a period in our culture where we're really questioning that that idea uh, um, much more deeply because of the Me Too movement, uh, because of the revelations of um, abysmal and repellent behavior uh, throughout the arts and other parts of life as well, but they've been most uh, evident for now anyway in the arts. And I think that um, <clears throat> one of the things that we're asking ourselves for the first time in centuries really is, is how much we're willing to tolerate for uh, for the for our art and we don't we're not asking the question in quite that way necessarily but that is um, that is implicit in it because for a very very long time there's been this this notion that people with great artistic talent are as I was saying right at the beginning are almost a different kind of human being and that they are of such genius and value that uh, they should be allowed to behave differently so um, the artistic temperament uh, in in the, the the imagination of 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 the public would be somebody who is probably pretty moody, probably pretty unpleasant at times. But if they are unpleasant and raging and smashing windows, and then they're probably sitting down and writing some great symphony afterwards. And that the one easily balances out the other. And this, as we've seen, has led to all sorts of very, very dangerous precedents in terms of personal behavior. And I think that right now there's a, a great disequilibrium in how the public and uh, how the public wants to respond to our artists, because there is still a great deal of these uh, these myths that that persist about artistic people that we haven't given up or been willing to change at all, but that underpin a great deal of the the uh, the ghastly uh, revelations that we've we've heard of late. And when you look at the history of the particular uh, myth and fantasy that we were talking about, which I did, I did in, in researching this, I went to try to figure out why exactly we have this idea of artists as being a different, a breed apart. And um, you can almost pinpoint it to a partic one particular moment or one particular book, one particular time. And that was in, um, in 1550, there was uh, the, the first publication of the lives of the artists by Vasari, the uh, Italian artist who also wrote the first biographies of artistic people, of, of uh, people like Raphael and Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and, and all of the other greats of the Renaissance that we know about. And prior to that, in many parts, artistic people had been viewed of, viewed, viewed as something akin to, um, to just laborers that, that, you know, they would come in and fit in the tiles or, or paint the walls and things like that. They were, they were not viewed uh, as, as anything too particularly special. Um, poets was a bit different, but but with visual artists, they were not. And then with the appearance of this book, he ended up um, describing these larger than life characters, these extraordinary people who whose behavior he implied throughout that book somehow shed light onto their artistic brilliance. And the two then became twinned and it has progressed over the centuries. And you've had the the, the whole myth of of bohemianism added to all of that and it's continued up until now for centuries really for half a half a millennium so i have um a question i have two parts that might be the flip side of each other but i guess the first one is 
you know, what is the significance of doing art just to do it? So you don't want to keep it. For instance, a lot of times Bear burned his paintings, but some of that was ego. And I, I think yeah. your book is exploring that a little. Yeah, definitely. It, it's, it is exactly the other side of, of, of professional art. And, and it's, um, it's often the, the, the act of making art is what drew the, the artistic person to the field in the very first place, that it was when they first sat down with a pencil and paper or with a, a pencil and a notepad or a keyboard or, or, a, um, or a musical instrument or whatever form of the arts it is. It's often the completely losing yourself in the, the precise act of trying to achieve something um, creative that is so blissful and even euphoric. And that is an amazingly seductive and wonderful experience that I think most people have had at some point. Then there's an entirely different stage, which is trying to turn that practice into a profession, trying to make that the thing that you that you are able to live off in one way. And that uh, ends up having a corrupting effect very frequently on the work. It also means that artistic careers often go one of two ways. You have people who are only in it for the blissful moment and often aren't really willing to work that hard because they are sitting there waiting for the fun of it. And those are people who very rarely get very far. And then there are others who, um, who are so determined to get somewhere that they are willing to have only tiny moments, rare moments of that blissful feeling again in order to, to um, achieve something to, and to keep going in this field that they've set out to to uh, to gain traction in. and I think that um, that that the characters in this book are overwhelmingly drawn into the 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 swirl of ambitions for their art and um, and it also it also touches on some of the questions of of art and craft that that are that are discussed in this book about the this the often arbitrary distinctions between art and craft, that there are certain forms of creative expression that are considered serious, whether it's uh, sculpture or painting and, or architecture and others like ceramics, which is the art form that, that uh, the character Natalie chooses to work in, uh, are considered sort of domestic and humble and, and um, pathetic and unserious and lacking in, in, um, in aesthetic qualities, more like a little household hobby in a very condescending way, which is an arbitrary decision that has um, that has affected many many uh, works of art and many many uh, artistic people too. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tom Rackman, author of the novel The Italian Teacher. So on the flip side of that, what if, for instance, someone did some great art, but it was anonymous? great art hanging on walls what if you wrote a book and didn't put your name on it what's that about for you i i think that the same a similar question could be asked in a different way which is this um if an artistic person knew that their work would be let's say in the louvre or, or in some really important collection or would become a bestseller or a hit song but their name would never be on it. They would never be acknowledged as having done it and nobody would ever know. Would they still do it? I don't think so. I think in most cases they wouldn't. And that's kind of sad in, 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 a, in a certain respect. But I think that, um, that uh, 
that it's very much connected to uh, people wanting to make their mark and to be known and recognized for that that mark. And um, the other side of this is that it, it's actually necessary to have a name attached to it in almost all cases for the reason that that there's a whole separate side of the arts, which is one that is, is, is something that is discussed in the book, which is the marketing of, of artists, which is quite apart from the artistic instinct and quite apart from artistic value, um, but is absolutely fundamental to those to, to deciding who ends up becoming uh, deemed uh, important or great in any single era. And there are certain, certain characters who are more easy to market and just as Berbavinsky, this, this um, huge, charismatic, um, physically impressive uh, character with uh, the kind of man who can, who can uh, draw a crowd at a party and have everybody um, glued to his, his comments and fascinated by his uh, pretty um, uh, debauched private life as well. All of those sorts of things end up playing into the whole marketing side of it, which is uh, an incredibly crass side that we, we don't really acknowledge to be to be as significant as it is, even in very serious arts, not just in, in the most commercial ones. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, I thought I would read something from the from an essay by George Orwell uh, called Politics in the English Language. And I, I, read, I read from this because there's something about his prose that has always... Uh, influenced me greatly. The the clarity with which he writes is is a, incredible, and his um, the way that he communicates a great degree of humanity and willingness to to look directly at unpleasant facts is something that um, I admire and that uh, I've always studied and tried to to learn from from the very first instances where I was trying to figure out how to to write. And um, this essay was was given to me by my father when I was a, a boy and writing essays in school. And he said, "This read this essay and you will know everything there is to need. You need to know about writing well. And um, it's one that I've returned to over and over again for that very reason. He's talking about politics um, primarily here, but it's not just politics. It's about clarity of thought as well, as you'll see from this excerpt. So Politics in the English Language by George Orwell. Most people who bother with the matter at all would admit that the English language is in a bad way, but it is generally assumed that we cannot, by conscious action, do anything about it. Our civilization is decadent, and our language, so the argument runs, must inevitably share in the general collapse. It follows that any struggle against the abuse of language is a sentimental archaism, like preferring candles to electric light. But an effect can become a cause, reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form and so on indefinitely. A man may take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure and then fail all the more completely because he drinks. It is rather the same thing that is happening to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. Do you want to say anything else about it? Well, I would just say that I, I think that uh, um, that's a, a truth that is too often overlooked, that uh, clarity of language is vitally important in clarity of thought and clarity of behavior and, and 
discussion and debate and resolution of ideas. And that I, I think that um, it's unfortunate that the 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 trend is not really is is more for a kind of casual, relaxed uh, and colloquial language at all times, which is there's nothing wrong with that. It's a very nice way to, to speak and one should be able to to be casual and relaxed whenever you want. But I think that that a, there's very little attention paid to um, to clarity of diction and clarity of expression, or at least a great deal less attention than should be paid to it. And it's not just because I happen to to write and think that it's it's worthy for that reason. I think it's also our only uh, way to clearly express the amazingly complex and confusing uh, emotions and ideas that are that are flushing through our, our heads all the time. And the only way that we have to to connect with each other is by is really is by by words. And something that David Foster Wallace said that once about how each of us is marooned within our own skull. And the way, however, that we can escape that situation is through language and through the ability to find as closely as possible the particular thought that we had. And I think that um, that by not attending to expression nearly enough, then we end up doing approximations of what we wanted, not just in the talking and in the writing, but also in the acting. And we're less likely to make the right decisions if we can't specify exactly what we intend. So that's why I like that one. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I thought I would read a short excerpt from the very first page of the book. And the reason that I, my new book, The Italian Teacher, the reason that I chose this is because openings, as we know, are so vitally important to books. And this is one that I worked over a huge amount to try to figure out exactly the right way to get into this story. And um, it was complex for reasons that I'll, I'll talk to you about after I've read this, this little introduction. So the setting is 1955 in Rome. Seated in a copper bathtub, Berbavinsky dunks his head under steaming water and shakes out his beard, flinging droplets across the art studio. He thumbs a bolt of shag tobacco into his pipe and flicks a Zippo lighter, sucking hard to draw down the flame, tobacco glowing devil red smoke coiling towards the wood beam ceiling. He exhales and stands. Beads of water rain off his torso. His five-year-old son, Pinch, hoists a thick bath towel, arms trembling under the weight. Bear runs his fingers through receding reddish blonde hair and, hand on the boy's head for balance, steps onto newspapers previously used for wiping paintbrushes. His wet footprints bleed across the print encircling dabs of oily blue and swipes of yellow. That's the, 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 the section I wanted to read, just because it, this was uh, one that I, I toiled over um, at length because I wanted to find a way to at once get into the story of these characters, convey the setting of it in Italy, uh, and also somehow communicate something about the relationship between these two characters, which will be so fundamental to the story that goes that follows. The the hard part was in, in not just in this in this opening, but in much of the book, was finding a way to simultaneously have a character, Berbavinsky, who is so such a huge character that he is justifiably the center of Pinch's life, but also not have him overshadow Pinch. And um, that was a, a complicated balance to try to, to establish. 
And I wanted early on as well to have, I wanted to tell the, the whole, pretty much the whole life of, of Pinch. And so starting at age five, if, if this book is going to be for his perspective, how can I tell the story of that scene that he was born into from the age of five, when at age five, his understanding of that context would have been very, very limited being just a little boy. So it wasn't just a question of, of storytelling or perspective. It was also the, the level of detail that I could include and the nature of those details in order that they would be believable as indirectly the, the point of view of this little boy who becomes our, our companion through the whole story. So it was a, it was a lot of work and, and one that, um, that's, that I, I would hope that somebody who's read the book could go back and look at that and feel like it, it had, uh, it had some sort of, um, uh, that it prefigures in some way, the story that is ahead. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tom Rackman, author of the novel, The Italian Teacher. Where do you write? Pretty much wherever I can find quiet space and my computer keyboard. But at the moment, that is in the converted attic of the of my home in London, and where I'm speaking to you right now, actually. And it's um, it's a a nice, needlessly spacious room with a windows on one side overlooking other rooftops, and on the other side looking overlooking the the tiny little London um, backyards that that people pretend uh, to to have a garden in, in London, and um, and it's uh, it's quiet, which is vital for me, and it has my computer, which is also uh, so important. But um, if I have quiet and somewhere to to write, then I can work pretty much anywhere, and often like to go to different places to to work if I need to have a period of isolation just to really, really concentrate on a particular section or maybe starting a new book, for example. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I don't particularly want to get away from writing. I think that I like to spend as much time as I can working on it. And and if I had more time, I would try to spend it on the the, the writing probably. Um, but uh, But as I said before, I have other things that are are vitally important to me now in my life, uh, and primarily my my young child, and therefore I have much less time to to write than I used to. So I value it ever more. And, and when I I suppose that if I if I've worked uh, for a long period over a course of a day and I'm just exhausted and I can't look at words anymore, then I probably you could probably find me collapsed in front of the television watching a documentary of some sort because I am kind of obsessed with with watching those or sometimes listening to podcasts, but. Part of me is suspicious when I do that, that I'm not doing it just for pleasure, but that I'm also doing it to try to learn more, hear more stories and more ideas that, that I might little, might be able to, to find little, um, little factoids from to somehow weave into to writing in the future. So I don't necessarily trust myself to be completely relaxed ever. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Firstly, I show it to my um, closest friends and family. And I, that would be my mother and my, my father and my eldest sister and my partner as well and uh, my closest friend. Those are probably the, those, that's, that would be the first round of people I would give it to. Um, but I would only show it to them once it's pretty advanced and once I feel very confident that it's 
pretty much what I want it to be. Um, I don't have the the confidence or the nature to show drafts that are really preliminary. I've never been somebody who will be in an early phase if something can show it to everybody so I can get feedback. And that feels totally inimical to to the kind of thing that I want to do, which is I desperately want to cling to the idea that I have and try to realize it. And then I put it before other people in a state of terrible anguish that they're going to think it's awful. And um, that's probably why I choose people I'm close with, because I know that at the very least that we share uh, some sort of aesthetic background and taste so that we will, uh, so that if they appreciate it, then I'll think, okay, I guess that it was more or less uh, along the lines that I was shooting for. And then whether people at large feel the same way, that's, that's a, a completely different question. How have you dealt with rejection? By doing my utmost to avoid it. I, I think that I that it's it's very painful, and uh, I suppose that there are <clears throat> there are different ways that you can you can deal with it. One is to harden yourself in a way that you don't care, or you tell yourself that you don't care what other people do. The other is to try to work in a way that that will limit the the chance that you'll be rejected by trying to do things that you think will people will will people will appreciate, but sometimes at the cost of doing what you want to do, which is a dangerous thing to do. And of course, you'll never satisfy everybody. So it's that's kind of a fool's approach in, in the end. So I think that that uh, one of the the very practical things that I do in this regard is that I, I for example, I, I avoid looking at any reviews, whether they're good or bad, of anything that I write. I don't read them. It's because I find it very uncomfortable to uh, to be too clearly exposed to what other people think of it. Because I, because of the fact that I I don't feel a great deal of confidence, and I do feel a great deal of of uh, of lasting distress if I if I if I feel that people think that what I've done is uh, hopeless in some way that I I'm not sure that I can continue to to work with the kind of dedication that I feel is necessary if I can also remember the things that the people thought were failed or poor in the things that I write it's not in some way of allowing myself to continue to think that I that I'm some kind of um, fantastic writer, and I'll never hear any bad reviews or anything. It's not for that. It's rather that I feel th- that the damage could be too great. So I, I try to avoid that because I, I have I have uh, a great array of criticisms always at the ready in my own head, and I don't I don't necessarily feel that I have the fortitude to withstand lots of others from from other people. So sum that up as as a very uh, high level cowardice. What is your favorite word? I think that it's it's almost impossible to answer this question. I, I would love to know what your other writers had had answered to this because I was thinking about trying to find a, a favorite word, and there's a problem with it, which is that there are different sorts of favorite words. There are favorite words that I like because I just visually like how they look, and other words that I like because of perhaps because of the meaning, but I might dislike their sound or how they appear on the page, and all those things would come into it, and. Any word that I would pick would end up seeming to be, if I have to pick one, somehow representative of something in me. And I have no idea what that one word would be. So I, I had a kind of long list of things that I, and I kept just writing them and then, and then crossing them out. And so maybe as I'm looking at them now, I'm going to pick perplexed because maybe that sums up the, um, the whole exercise. And I don't know if it sums up me, but it sums up the exercise. And I like how it looks and sounds. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Tom Rackman, author of the novel The Italian Teacher. 
You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.